0: Alright, well let's continue on in our study. Obviously we're moving forward in the second part of this look of Proverbs chapter 31 verses 10 through 27, this look at this excellent wife and just kind of remind us of a few things from last time, not to spend too much time on, on how we set this up last time, but just to remind us of how we, we kind of started by trying to build a profile of what the modern Woman of accomplishment looks like um, sort of the secular vision for that that woman of strength and accomplishment and and of course the ladies in the room did a great job of giving us some some ideas about that profile and and it was very uh, helpful to kind of set that up because it serves as a great contrast to what you see in Proverbs chapter thirty one and then what we've started looking at very briefly last week. But the point I think that we were trying to make last time in talking about or setting up this profile of the strong, independent, accomplished woman in the modern secular mind is not so much to say, okay, here's that vision, and now let's do everything we can to criticize it and bash it, but to really set that up and to say, look, the vision that you find in Proverbs chapter 31 and really throughout Scripture of the the woman of God, or in this case, the excellent wife, is no less a woman of incredible strength, of incredible accomplishment. And oftentimes what you find in, in this conflict that arises between some biblical ideas of womanhood or, uh, or the role of the wife in, in, in the life of home and family, it is a diminishment of that vision by the secular world and by the secular mind. And oftentimes, it ascribes to that vision this idea or these notions of weakness, of not accomplishing all of your potential, not reaching all of your potential, and these kinds of ideas. And the fact of the matter is, is it's just the exact opposite. And when you look at Proverbs 31 in particular, what you see there is this unbelievable vision of womanhood that is staggering in its accomplishment. And in, in the character that is required there, and in the skill and in the ingenuity and the creativity. So we're going to look at that, obviously, in more in more detail today. But the other point that we made last time is to recognize the danger that often emerges in light of any kind of uh, societal wrong, any kind of collective social or societal wrong. So, for example, in this particular context, when you think about what often gives rise to ideas of feminism, of women pursuing their, their, their due in life, and, and this idea of equal rights, well, the, it often begins with this, this reaction to some kind of wrong. It could be the fact that, that there has been abuses of power by men, there is, there's been uh, uh, exercise of wrongful authority over women, if you will. There's been oppression that is very real and very true and certainly not part of the biblical vision. But what we often do as a society and as societies collectively is we react to these kinds of things. And oftentimes we are reacting in our flesh. And when we react to these kinds of things in our flesh, what is the end result, but pendulum swings to the opposite direction. It doesn't bring us to any kind of state of of balance or rightness or anything. It's generally just reaction that leads to overreaction, that leads to complete imbalance and and leads to the same kind of instability and the same kinds of wrongs. It just takes on a different shape and size and color and whatever. And the fact of the matter is is that in Scripture, what you find as as both the work of God in Christ and the, the, the delegated work of those who are His people is to be about redeeming things. And so what Proverbs does is it gives us this vision of redeemed womanhood. In other words, you have the creation ideal of man and woman being brought together in marriage union that gets completely disrupted and damaged in the fall, and now we're set about in this task of redeeming that vision, that ideal. And so Proverbs 31 gives us a great vision of what that redeemed ideal looks like. We also said that it's important for us as men and husbands, but also for the ladies to recognize that this is holding up an aspirational ideal and so, it's not something that, that we should have in view, either on the, on, the, on the part of men, some kind of list to hold over our wives to say, you know, you're really falling short on, short on this whole wool and flax thing. I mean, I haven't seen the spindle out in a long time. You know, where is that thing? Um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a list for us to hold up and, and try to hold our wives accountable to something, something in particular. And for the women, it shouldn't be this thing that's just a depressing and discouraging thing that you know you feel like you're constantly failing to hit the mark. It's all about setting up a standard or something to aspire to and to work toward. And in fact, when you think about Christianity as, as its essence, what are we doing in, in our sanctification but working out our salvation with fear and trembling and trying to become more like who? Christ. So... But we're doing that in the grace of God, right? We're doing that by His grace, by His power, and not doing it in and through this constant sense of condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just making sure that we keep this perspective on on this ideal that's being held up before us and seeing it as a a redemptive vision and an aspirational vision, that would be the appropriate, I think, way to, to look at it. Now, As we we moved through the study, I did kind of establish a little bit of context by looking at uh, the first section of Proverbs 31, where you have this great instruction to King Lemuel, which we don't have a lot of information on on who this person was, but really this is is his mom giving him instruction on how to be a a great and godly and wise leader. And some would argue that this, this section of Proverbs 31 that deals with the excellent wife is not connected to this first section. Others would say that it, it, there's no reason why it couldn't be connected, but providentially, in the canon of Scripture, it is connected. And so I use that as sort of a, a context for this final instruction from a mom to her husband about not just how he would lead other people and be a servant leader and being concerned about the needs of others and about true justice and those kinds of things, but also that a man of stature, a man of wisdom, a man of great leadership is one who finds this kind of excellent wife. And then we get this, this acrostic, this Hebrew acrostic, which basically begins each verse with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet that allows for memory of this. And it also speaks to, this is a sort of, the, if you want to use an a English idea of it, it's it's the A to Z vision. It's like complete. I mean, if you want to know what, a godly wife and a godly woman looks like. Here's the A to Z list right here. So it gives this idea of completeness. It has a poetic uh, value to it. So there's a, a thing, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, piece of literature. But it's also set up as this acrostic for, to make it very memorable according to the Hebrew alphabet. So there's just so much in this that's, that's, that's wonderful in terms of both its content, what it speaks to, the ideal that it holds up. How it basically is written in such a way that's, that that uses the beauty of poetry. It has structure that gives it a sense of symmetry and memorability uh, and, and memorableness. Um, so it's a wonderful section of scripture in so many ways. Now, as we as we also set up our context for this, we talked a little bit about how um, when you think about how Proverbs deals with uh, the 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 relationship of husband and wife. One of the things we talked about is how Proverbs emphasizes that a good wife is a gift from the Lord, and she has capacity or even power to be a profound blessing and a source of stability for her husband. And we looked at that, her husband and family, and we looked at that in previous sessions in these various Proverbs that speak of how the wife in the home has significant influence and power and authority. Again, another indication that we're not talking about some diminished vision of this lowly, meek and mild, don't say a word kind of woman that is often um, caricatured in the modern mind. We're talking about something quite the opposite. It's a woman of great influence, of great power. Power to both bring good and stability and strength, but also power to destroy and to bring down uh, the family and the husband. That's what you see in Proverbs. Now, let's look at Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 31. That's where we're going to uh, spend the rest of our time today. And let's just read the whole section together, and then we'll get into the, the outline for the day. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands to hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates." So let's kind of break this down, and of course, I'm not going to spend time touching on every possible um, characteristic that you could highlight in this section. There, there are many, and we could spend a lot of time uh, coming at this from a lot of different angles. So in, in, in terms of how I'm kind of working through this with us together, please don't think that I'm uh, wanting to intentionally overlook an important point. And of course, if you have some other insight or something that you would want to add to the mix, please, please do so. But I try to just sort of encapsulate this in sort of a few different categories or a few different headlines here. And the first one is to look at this woman, this excellent wife, and look at her her valor and her value. Her valor and her value. And this is in the first few verses here. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She is a valiant woman. In this term valiant, just an English definition, you would have this, boldly courageous, brave, stout hearted, heroic, worthy, excellent. This word for excellent, that's translated excellent in the ESV, translated virtuous in other places, uh, it's a, a word that literally means strength, or efficiency, or wealth, but it also has connotations of the army, or warrior, or valor. It's something, it's it's more comprehensive than just simple notions of excellence, of doing something well. It has this connotation of valor and strength. Uh, in, In fact, other commentators have translated this this way. It's a woman of strength, or a woman of valorous virtue, or a strong woman, or a woman of valor. And Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, he uses the term a valiant wife. He doesn't, he doesn't call her an excellent wife, he uses this literal term, valiant wife, to describe it. He believes that that sort of captures the real meaning of the word and the term in its context. And he, he talks about how this really, this section, is an example of what, he's, what he terms Israel's heroic poetry. He basically puts this into the category of hero poetry that would more often be uh, uh, characterized by the recounting of heroic and mighty deeds by men of valor, usually in the context of military exploits and military achievement. But he puts this description of this excellent wife in that same kind of category of poetry. And he uses this term valiant to describe her, to indicate or to give the full orbed context of the meaning of this term. It's not just This is a woman who really gets after it and works hard and does things well. No, he wants to make sure that we understand this is a woman of incredible strength and bravery and courage, akin to that of a warrior, an accomplished warrior who has many victories in battle and whose exploits are recounted in poetry to sort of put his ex- exploits on display for time memoriam, to, to capture them for all to see for time memoriam. Um, Walke also uh, sees this as a, a, a polemic, an argument against what is the typical kind of praise of women in ancient Near Eastern literature, which is often associated with a woman's charms, and even more specifically, the, more the, the erotic or sensual charms of a woman. In other words, in, in ancient Near Eastern literature, oftentimes these praiseworthy poetic uh, verses about women really focus more on a woman as an object of sensual desire. And this, this really is kind of a polemic against that, that, narrow, that narrow vision. In fact, you have at the end in verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, is, is the statement there. And I thought this was really interesting one of Bruce Waldke's students wrote a paper in his, one of his seminary classes. And so this is from an actual student. And he quoted, wouldn't this be great? I mean, if you're, if you're in seminary and you write a paper and you submit it to a professor, and this professor just so happens to publish a two-volume set on the book of Proverbs, and then they quote you and your paper that you turned into them in their commentary, that's pretty cool. But she has this great uh, um, insight. Her name's Erica Moore, and here's what she says. Well, some of this is, is quoting her, and some of it is um, sort of, uh sort of introduction of the quote. She says, The poem's use of military imagery in the domestic sphere presents the godly wife as, and here's a quote, as a spiritual heir of Israel's ancient heroes and, quote, a champion for those around her by diligent application of wisdom. The valorous wife is a heroic figure used by God to do good for his people, just as the ancient judges and kings did for God's people by their martial exploits. Waldke goes on to say, This valiant wife has been canonized as a role model for all Israel for all time. Wise daughters aspire to be like her. Wise men seek to marry her. And all wise people aim to incarnate the wisdom she embodies, each in his own sphere of activity. Now, I mean, you think about this, and then you think about how diminished the vision of womanhood and being a godly wife is in the modern mind. I mean, Scripture couldn't paint a more opposite and contradictory picture than that. Even in the use of the language of the text, it highlights this. Well, not only is she valiant, brave, courageous, strong, mighty, but she's incredibly valuable. An excellent wife, who can find? This rhetorical question at the beginning. And then she is far more precious than jewels. So you have this this rhetorical question at the beginning, who can find this, this, this woman, this excellent wife, who can find her? And it really speaks to her rarity. This is, this is a rare kind of individual. They're not on every corner, is the point. I mean, the implied answer is, who can find her? Well, not many, because she's rare. And then it goes on to speak of her value in terms of her, this reference to jewels. She's far more precious than jewels. So this enhances her value. Now, if you think about it this way, if precious jewels are valuable, and if rare precious jewels are even more valuable, then get that picture in your mind, and then completely blow it out, because the text says she is far more precious than jewels. So you're talking about this, this uh, ascribing of value that is tremendous. Now, what makes her so valuable? Well, you have an indication of this right here at the beginning in verses 11 and 12. It says, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now, just looking at that, If you're a husband with a wife like that, do you think that there'd be some ascribing of value to that kind of wife? If you have a wife that you can completely place your trust in, without equivocation, without hesitation, in totality, because you know that this this woman of incredible distinction, of incredible courage, of unparalleled strength, of of unbelievable ingenuity and cleverness, she is going to make sure that you have no lack of gain as she manages the household, as she takes care of her role and her function as wife and mother. And she's so focused on this, it's not just momentary, but it's all the days of her life. This is what she does. This is how much trust she engenders. This gets right here, I think, at the underlying character and driving motivation. It it brings that, that underlying motivation, that driving motivation to really sharp focus. And then the rest of these verses just illustrate that. Now, when you think about this, let me read the text again. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now, I say that that really brings this internal primary motivation into very clear focus. Based upon the reading of those, those verses, what, what would you say is the core motivation here? To be, to be a servant. That's exactly it. The rest of what you see is just illustration of that very core driving motivation. What you see here is a woman... Who is fully and completely devoted to serving another. I mean, that's just that's it. It just so happens in this context, in the context of marriage and her being a wife. It's this it's the service of her husband. And then, of course, by extension, the family. But this woman is described as someone who's completely devoted to that level of service, that degree of service. In other words, and we talked about this last week as we we sort of highlighted this. This modern secular vision of strength and womanhood. This is the exact opposite of that because we, we said that there's an orientation toward self gratification and, and self centered achievement and accomplishment and the praise of people, you know, adulation and, and accolades coming to me as a result of, of what I do. But this woman is so driven by serving her husband, she's not driven by pleasing herself. She's not after getting what she's owed or what's due her. She's not trying to pursue the accolades and praise of other people because of some worldly accomplishments. She's committed to, wholeheartedly committed to, earning and keeping the trust of her husband, to ensuring his gain, and to doing him good all the days of her life. Now, when I say that, this is what sets off the alarm bells in the modern mind, right? I mean... Do you think that I could go to you know, your local college campus and give a lecture on this and be applauded by you know, all the professors and most of the students and all that? If I said, look, ladies, when you're thinking about marriage and family and your future, here's what you need to be thinking about. Find a husband that you can wholeheartedly give your utter, absolute everything all the days of your life to earning and, comp- and keeping his trust and to serving his needs, and to working for his good and his gain all the days of your life. How would that message land, do you think? Not so good, right? You don't think so? I would definitely have to come up with a a lecture title that was totally veiling what I was really going to say. Yeah. But you can clearly see that she she is not driven by... Self-centeredness. She is completely driven by serving another. And again, when you come back to the very essence of what life in Christ is all about, it is about a pouring out of yourself, is it not? In service to God and service to others. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with everything that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of Christianity, the essence of of the kingdom. And so this woman basically is just exhibiting that in the context of home and marriage and family. Now, when you think about this, you think about how this would land on the secular-minded person and their vision of, of happiness in womanhood. Of the pursuit of contentment or satisfaction as a woman. I mean, we can—we already kind of laughed about it. We can immediately hear the the barbs coming back at us, and how that is so oppressive. And that's all you care about is is robbing a woman of her of her joy and keeping her down and not allowing her to achieve her maximum potential. But can we not agree, and if you don't agree, then we'll have to probably talk about this at a different time. We don't need to discuss it now, but I think most of us would agree, or all of us would agree, that God's Word is transcendent. It, 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 it's not bothered by changing trends, by different ideologies that ebb and flow. Its truth and its power and its authority is utterly and completely transcendent for all time and eternity. And so that comes to bear when you start looking at what's actually going on in the lives of women today one of the articles oftentimes when you start you know when you start searching for different subjects and you you start seeing all these different publications that pull up articles on a particular subject what is often interesting to me in that process is seeing how many different articles you start reading are all sort of quoting and referencing one particular study like it could be The Daily Mail over in, in the U.K., it could be you know the, the New York Times, I mean, all these different articles in USA Today and all that, and they're all kind of highlighting and drawing out and illustrating and, and summarizing the same study. and this is what happened in this process. I read several different articles, and they all pointed to this one particular study. The title of the study was "The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness." by Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers. Now, I, don't, I didn't want to try to encapsulate a bunch of different information from this. It would just take too much time, and it, was, it, was, it could get too tedious for us. But let me just read to you the abstract, the summary of the study, its own summary of, how, of what it's about. By many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved over the past 35 years. Yet we show that measures of subjective well-being indicate that women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. The paradox of women's declining relative well-being is found across varied data sets, measures of subjective well-being, and is pervasive across demographic groups and industrialized countries. So in other words, this is about declining happiness of women, and it's not isolated to socioeconomic status, to region, to it, it cuts across demographic lines. Relative declines in female happiness have eroded a gender gap in happiness in which women in the 1970s typically reported higher subjective well-being than did men. These declines have continued, and a new gender gap is emerging, one with higher subjective well-being for men. Now, I would argue that this is not good news for men at all. This is not good news for men. I mean, if you're just thinking about it of you know, our team versus their team, you could say, yay, the men are winning, right? But they're not. We're all losing. We're all losing as a society. And the fact of the matter is, is that you could, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different angles to kind of cut and dice this, this, this study and the, and the results of this study. But I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, at the core of all this is the fact that the, the biblical ideal of womanhood has been lost In pursuit of some other ideal, and it is not paying off. It just doesn't pay off because it's not true. It's a lie. It's a falsehood. And that's what you're. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're getting. In a whole bunch of different articles. It's so amazing to read these studies and see all these different. It's. It's. You know, when when Scripture says that, um, uh, he makes he makes the wise foolish right? I mean, the, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. You start reading these sociological studies and you see the utter folly of analysis and people trying to bring secular solutions to bear on what is an, an eternal problem. And that's what you see in this case as well. Women, in general, even though they have more, more freedom, more economy of pay, there's, I mean, statistics are showing more women getting higher education. I mean, on and on and on it goes. And yet, it's not paying off as expected. So, God's Word is true. And when you think about the value of this woman in this particular text, in this, uh, this, this reference to trust, that her husband trusts in her, I would argue... That there is nothing more fortifying to the strength and stability of any relationship, but in particular and especially the marriage relationship, than comprehensive, unwavering trust. A complete confidence in your spouse that he or she is wholeheartedly committed to you, to your well being, to your fruitfulness in all your endeavors. Nothing is more fortifying or stabilizing in a marriage relationship, any, any relationship, but in particular marriage, than this kind of comprehensive, unquestioned trust and confidence in the other. that They are there for you. They are after your good all the days of your life. They, are, they see as a primary role and function of their existence on the planet is to serve you. And to take care of all that is yours. And to see that your gifts are maximized. That your fruitfulness in this life and in this world for the cause of Christ is maximized. There is nothing that brings more strength and stability to that relationship than that kind of trust. And for the husband in particular, this is a liberating principle. This is such a freeing principle for the husband that has this kind of wife, that he trusts in her, that he knows that she is after his good, that he will lack nothing and he will gain everything. And this is, this is a working operating principle in his wife all the days of her life. This is such a liberating principle for him. This complete confidence that his wife, that potentially the mother of his children, she's got it all in hand. She's she's, she's competent, she's skillful, she's devoted. Her her commitment to serving home and family is unwavering and unquestioned because she knows it is something that is given to her by God as a stewardship. And she is committed to that in the same way that she is committed to God himself. It's driven out of that type of devotion. And it is a freeing thing so that a husband and a father is not distracted, is not concerned, is not suspicious, is not worrying, but it frees the husband to be focused on his primary role and responsibility as provider protector. There's no fear, there's no anxiety, there's no insecurity that crops up. I mean, just think about how this actually works functionally in the life in the context of the home. It is an amazing, amazing principle. And so when you sort of think about it in those kinds of terms, you can see that this this is an immense value that this excellent wife brings to the home and to the family and to the marriage, to the husband. And you can see this illustrated most vividly when this kind of trust is broken. What are the effects of foundational and fundamental broken trust in a marriage relationship? Think of the chaos that ensues in that home and in that family when that kind of trust is broken. You don't have stability. You don't have hope. You don't have agreement. You don't have confidence. It is a home and a life and a relationship that is full of distraction at best and chaos and destruction at worst because of broken trust. So it stands to reason that this would bring unbelievable value in that relationship dynamic. This excellent wife, she is valiant, courageous, and immensely valuable. She's fully trusted by her husband because he knows that she is completely devoted to serving him and working for his good. And that's the picture that you have in Proverbs 31. Well, in addition to that, we see that she is a woman of tremendous vigor and virtue. I'm using this V thing. I got this V thing going on. She's a woman of tremendous vigor and virtue. In verses thirteen to twenty-seven. You see this. Now, let me just break this down as as opposed to reading through that section again. Let me just kind of break this down into its its component parts. You see here that she is a vigorous worker in the home, and you kind of have this in a bookend fashion in verses thirteen, and then in verse twenty-seven. In verse excuse me in verse um, seventeen, uh, verse seventeen, you have a bookend there. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. And then verse 27 at the end, She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is, she is a, a vigorous worker in the home. And she's, she, you see this manifested in the care of her family's physical needs, for example. You see this strength and vigor and this virtue and this commitment demonstrated in the care of the family's physical needs. So you have these references to clothing and bedding. You have verse thirteen, for example, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. So she's making sure that the, the raw materials necessary for creating the elements that, that they would use to make clothing for the home and the family, that she has those in in, in place and ready to put her hand in verse nineteen to the distaff in her hands. Hold the spindle. Now, this is not obviously a mandate to go back to old ways of you know, making clothes for your kids. You're not more virtuous as a wife because you make clothes for your kids. That's not the point, right? We know the point is that there's a care and a concern for the physical well-being of home and family. You not only see this in clothing, you see this in, in, in bedding. Or actually verse 21, she's not afraid of the snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. This is an interesting term. This idea of scarlet. I've heard some speak of it as um, her, her inclination for, for beauty in what she makes, creativity and beauty, scarlet being a rich uh, color um, to make this bedding in. But there's also um, uh, a question about the translation of that term that it really could mean double. So in other words, this context here, snow, uh, she's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed doubly. There's a double layer of clothing. It's a thicker garment, in other words, is the idea here. But nevertheless, she's taking care of it. She's looking to the physical needs of her household. She makes bed coverings for herself, and her, clo- her clothing is fine linen and purple. So in all of this, you might think that this woman, she's got to be worn out. I mean, she's taking care of everybody else, and she's got to be worn out, and she probably looks pretty haggard. Like, you know, you, you show up, you, not, you, you come home, and you probably ought to give her like you know, half an hour or so to kind of reorient herself and maybe spruce up a little bit because she's just been worn out all day long. She's wrung out. But no. This woman is tending to her own needs and she's making sure that she's attentive to her own appearance. There's just a conscientiousness there. I mean, she, like I said, she, she's serving her husband and she knows that she wants to present herself as an attractive bride. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. Can we just say that out loud? There's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's not trite. It's not manipulative. It's not empty. It's not everything for sure. But it's it's something, and that by the way, this doesn't need to be seen as a as a 50s sitcom version, you know, an Ozzy and Harriet or Leave It to Beaver kind of model. I mean, We're not talking about you know high heels and you know bright red lipstick and hair all quaffed and everything like that. But there is an there is an indication that it's not it's not a, a non issue. It's it's she's, she attends to herself as well. She's concerned about her own well being and her own physical needs and her own appearance and that of her family. She 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 does this in the area of food as well. Verse 14, She is like the ships of the merchants. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night. Verse 15, And provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. This is this idea of, of effort and creativity. In other words, she's, she's looking for ways to feed her family and feed them well and feed them with some creativity and flair. Looking for other types of food from afar. In other words, the, the food that would be available in, in immediate areas would probably be of the same type over and over again. It's kind of like, you know, if you live right next to, a, I mean, how many of you eat Chick-fil-A like three times a week, right? I mean, you, it's like it's a common, you know, if you're going to have to get fast food, you know, it's one of the better ones, so you're going to get it all the time and it's close and convenient. Well, similar idea, I mean, access to foods in your close, uh, uh, close proximity to you would be fairly limited. And this gives you an image of a, of a woman who's kind of seek, going out beyond a to find different creative ways to feed her family, to provide more variety, not because she's trying to get on the cover of good housekeeping, but because she's wanting to serve well with excellence. So she goes that extra mile. Again, this aspirational ideal of someone who's looking for ways to do that. She's got this vigor and virtue in her creative and industrious use of her gifts. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. In verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. This is a very industrious woman. She's doing things to earn money, to help support the household, and to provide extra things for the family, and to basically use the gifts that God's given her and the creativity that God's given her in ways that are profitable in the marketplace. She's not looking to make a name for herself. She's not looking to you know climb some corporate ladder but she's certainly not you know sitting by and letting her gifts go idle letting her abilities her knowledge her understanding of a certain craft or trade or something like that she's not just letting it sit idle she's putting that to work for the home and for the family and for the glory of God she's using her gifts and she's being creative and industrious in the use of them and she's she's virtuous and she's vigorous in her concern for and ministry to others in need. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. Now here's the thing. Oftentimes, we can get, men and women, we can get distracted by ministry, can't we? We can become very involved in serving others in some ministry endeavor. And if we were, if, 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 the, if the true motivations and intentions of our heart were laid bare... Oftentimes, if we become imbalanced in those endeavors, more fully engaged and devoted by virtue of time and commitment and mental focus and all that, to where it's distracting from our primary responsibilities in our home and in our family, if we get too out of balance in that regard, is it not true that oftentimes we do that because we get the satisfaction of people thinking well of us? Maybe we're too attached to the praise that we get because other people are commending us. And in fact, is it not true that the work we often do in the home, particularly with kids, is pretty thankless oftentimes, right? I mean, I don't know how well you guys have done in training up your children, but I, I have to say that I, we have not been as effective as I probably would like to be. And our children, you know, every, I don't know, half an hour or so, coming to my wife and I and saying, you know, have I, thought, have I thanked you lately? For how well you've cared for me, all these. I mean, you know, come on, right? It's a very thankless. It can be a very thankless enterprise, and so we can become, you know, enamored with and maybe a little bit attached to that gratification of praise and recognition from others, and we can get distracted even in ministry endeavors. But this is a woman who has that in balance. It's not either or. It's both and in proper balance. So she is concerned for the ministry of others to minister to others and to serve others needs but it's all in balance. And she's also concerned with and virtuous in and strong in her care for her family's spiritual needs. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So this is a woman who is not just silent in the home and doing all the work, uh, you know, all the domestic duties and doing it quietly. No, this is a woman who, when she speaks, she speaks with wisdom and authority, and with kindness, because she cares for her family's spiritual needs in, in, in as much as more, or more than she cares for their physical needs, even. So this is a woman who has incredible strength. I mean, you have this reference to the fact that she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. I mean, it's almost like you've got this woman who you know, she's, she wakes up at five and she goes to the gym. She comes home and she's all buff and everything, you know. But the idea here is a woman who, she's not idle and she's busy and she's working and there's physical effort that's exerted to do this. And she's doing this and it's keeping her strong. And it's, it's adding to her vitality. It's adding to her strength. It's only multiplying her vigor. And is it not true, if you just apply... the the more comprehensive or overarching spiritual principle to this particular description of this excellent wife in the home, is it not indeed true that the more we are serving and pouring ourselves out in the will of God and in the strength and the power of God, that when we're weak, then we're strong, right? That's That's where Christ Strength is perfected in our weakness. And so you have this idea of strength uh, that's associated not only with the fact that what she's doing is arduous physically, but it's the fact that in the doing of it, it makes her stronger ultimately. It has a multiplying effect of that strength. So there's a physical strength. There's a virtuous strength here that's on display, both in the work that she's doing but in also the motivation and care that is behind that work. She's not just wanting to make sure that her family has a blanket. She wants it to be a doubly warm blanket. She wants it to be the best material. She wants it to be made well. She's not just wanting to make sure her kids have sustenance, but she's looking within her means to do things creatively, as creatively as she possibly can. Now, this obviously is a woman of some means, it seems, because of, her feeding her maidens, and you just have this indication that she's a woman of means. The idea is not, again, this is not to set up some some standard checklist that you have to check off. Well, you know, I'm going to have to make sure I get this kind of delicacy to feed my family, otherwise I'm not a virtuous woman. It's the principle behind it, that there's creativity and there's effort and there's strength and there's vitality and there's virtue driving all of this work and all this labor. And I think that verse 13, which is the first part of this description she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands this is not begrudging work this is not coming from an attitude of resentment or despair or hopelessness you see here this this rejuvenating strengthening willing work that's underway and only can that come from the heart of a woman who understands who she is before God. Not who she is primarily before men or before her husband or before her children, but before God. Is this possible to sustain? But that's who this woman is in her, in her strength, in her vigor, and in her virtue. And then you close this out with her vaunted reputation, her, her elevated reputation. And we could say a lot about this, but just look at verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits sits among the elders of the land. So here's the husband, and he's among the elders, and they're sitting around, and they're talking about the issues of the community. There's sort of this idea of a a leadership council of some sort, the elders of the land, maybe some governing body or something like that. And, and, And her husband is known because of what she's doing in the home and what she's doing and the buying of this field and, And the cultivating of all the things and the enterprises at home. It's it's building a reputation that her husband is the beneficiary of amongst his peers. And then, verse 28 her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's the driving motivation. This is a woman who's not working to gain favor. This is a woman who fears the Lord. That's at the core of her being, of her understanding of who she is before God. This is a woman who fears the Lord. And it's contrasted with this idea of charm and beauty and all the deceitfulness and vanity of those things. She is about rightful living in gratitude, using her gifts, using her strength, using her creativity, using her vitality in a way that is honorable to the Lord first and of great service to her husband and to her home and her family second. And that as a result, not as an end, not as a goal, but just as a result, just as the fruit of all that, her reputation is stellar in the community The very words of commendation from her husband and her children rising up and calling her blessed. Her children honoring her in this way. Verse 31, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is a vision of a woman who is completely, as we said at the beginning, devoted to serving another. And all that God has given her in the way of strength and virtue and vitality and creativity is poured out in that act of service, in those acts of service, those various forms of service in the home. Now this is not some um, some mandate or mantra to say, that the only place that a woman can be fruitful and productive is in the home, and that if any woman chooses to work outside the home in any way, then she's not fulfilling her god given responsibility. That's not, that's not the principle here. In fact, you see that this woman even, in fact, is doing things to earn money outside the home. But it is clear that the focus of her mission, the focus of her ministry, the focus of her life is the home and is the family. And to the extent that that focus becomes uh, unproductively and unhealthily divided in other ways, there will be a cost. There will be a diminishment of fruitfulness in this enterprise of being an excellent wife that is held up in the gates, praised by her husband and her children. There will be a diminishment of that. And so there is a caution there to all wives, all women, to recognize that you can become easily distracted you can become easily, your your mission, your 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 reason for being in this home and in this family and in this marriage, in the way that you honor the Lord in it can become easily distracted and diminished, even for things like ministry or other things that you can get distracted in that are in and of themselves and by themselves not the problem. It's where your heart and focus is and how that's being compromised, potentially. So that's just a good caution for us to be thinking about. We could talk about that more at length, but... Just wanted to summarize that.